sin. And welcome to the Thinking God podcast, where our guests talk about how the light gets in and tell their own stories of why they think there's still a reason for faith and hope in a world that doesn't seem to put a premium on that. My guest today is somebody I've wanted to have on for a while, and this is good timing because she has a new book out. Jamie Wright calls herself the very worst missionary, a snarky, sarcastic, cynical Valkyrie who just does not care if you agree with her or like her. Uh, She stakes out a territory like this because she loves Jesus and she loves people and, well, most people. And But behind all the snark is an extraordinary writer whose honesty about her own journey in faith is almost in the unicorn rare area. Uh, it's always refreshing to hear somebody who can be completely honest and, and transparent in, in the way they talk about their lives and their faith and what's going on. Her new memoir, the book I was mentioned, The Very Worst Missionary, which is available everywhere, is sort of a shuck and jive ground, on the ground tale from the field in her days as a missionary, five years uh, on the foreign field, watching Christians bring white people religion to people who aren't Americans. She returned from her self-imposed exile on those foreign shores with a new mission to shine light on the astronomical waste of time and money well-meaning American Christians spend on mission trips and also money spent on missions in general. How can be better used? She's also involved in helping uh, battle the uh, human trafficking problem and she's involved in a little bit of everything, and, and uh, we appreciate Jamie taking time to talk to us today. In addition to her new book, which is, again, available at Amazon and everywhere else, her blog, theveryworstmissionary.com, offers updates pretty regularly uh, on some of the most refreshing commentary on faith you will find anywhere, and I think you will enjoy our discussion with Jamie today. I did want to make it clear to people who are listening, uh, our listeners up front, we're talking about Christian missions and missionaries here when we talk about it. So other religions have their own forms of mission work, and I'm relatively certain that uh, neither Jamie or I have enough knowledge about them to even have an opinion. So <laughs> we are talking about Christians here. Um, sure. Your book uh, seems to indicate that your many of your most meaningful spiritual experiences took place outside of your what they. This is we're getting into Christianese here. Vocational calling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd say the majority of it. In fact, my vocational calling was really like the eye opener where I was like, "Oh, God's not in this." <laughs> <laughs> like the vocational calling was like the least godly thing I've ever done. I think. How do you think your family's experience would have been different if you decided to go just as human beings and not missionaries to Costa Rica? Oh, gosh, I think it would have been so much better, honestly, because there would have been, you know, we, we could have really gotten into life there without that veil of um, missions and of just there's just like this immediate wall. The minute the minute people realize that you're a missionary um, and I think a lot of missionaries are like really proud of it. Like, oh, I'm a missionary. And the people are like, oh, OK. And, um, you know, like they'll start. Oh, sorry about my language or sorry, you know. Um, but I think there's it definitely like it creates this weird um, dynamic in which the people around, you know, that you have an agenda and it makes them uncomfortable. So it would have been it would have been cool to to just, you know, be working for Intel and live in Costa Rica for five years or something. That would have been cool. <laughs> Well, do you keep in touch? I was thinking of that when I read the book. Do you keep in touch with any of the folks y'all met down there? Um, mm-hmm. And, and how, what's that relationship like? Yeah. I mean, we have Costa Rican friends that we've um, kept in touch with. I wouldn't say we'd stayed close to just because distance. I'm, I'm not a really good, I'm not good at friendship. <laughs> like, I'm really good at doing life with people. Like, my friends, I'm very kind of out of sight, out of mind. And so um, there are some people that are really good at pursuing relationships over distance and 
I sort of feel like at some point there's only so many times that you can say, oh, I really miss you before it just gets weird. So, um, you know, we, we talk on holidays and birthdays and just keep keep in touch and kind of keep track of each other on Facebook. But, I, you know, beyond that, it's it's not like we're like talking on the phone every week. Um, and some of the missionaries, too, that I've stayed in touch with that are just people like lovely people that I um, felt privileged to know while we were there and, and you know, really appreciated and, and learned a lot from. So, um, definitely still have some of those people that I, I really adore and I'm glad to, to know, you know? Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because that's one of the things I think that, uh, we could have all used, uh, some encouragement and understanding of developing friendships. It's very difficult for anyone as you become an adult and the older you get, the, the more difficult it is because your old friends, when you get to my age, start dying on you. <laughs> and uh, yeah. it, uh, but it really is. They, no one tells you how to foster friendships when you're growing up. They try to teach you everything else and tell you how to be good and what to do. And but nobody says, you know, when you get older, you're really not going to care whether you cleaned your room up. You're going to really miss your friends. Yes, yeah, it's so true. And I, I never, I'm such an introvert, and I'm just not very good at like some people are just relationally gifted. And honestly, all of my best friends are, and that's the only reason we have great relationships <laughs> is because they are pursuers of our relationship and our friends and they understand me and they just go, okay, well, we know that you're an introvert and, you know, every once in a while we just have to like drag you out of your house and remind you that we're your, we're friends and, you know, but I'm just not naturally, um, I'm just not good at it. Like it sounds so like shallow and gross, but I'm just, I'm really not good at friendship. So I I really, I think you're missing your place because I think it's cool that I've got friends the same way and I'm a little more outgoing. If we were all outgoing, we'd get on each other's last nerve in a hurry. Totally. Right. That's how I feel. (laughs) We need some people who are, you have to kind of say, you know, we got to get you out of the house, you know? Yes. And you got other people say, quit calling me. We just, we had lunch with you yesterday and we had dinner last night. I'm not having breakfast this morning. We got, I've got stuff to do, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And I have that balance with my, my, it's so funny because I'm such an introvert and my closest friends are absolutely extroverts, you know, and you just think, Oh, we're so opposite, but, but we balance each other out really well that way. I think. That's cool. I'm kind of bouncing around here, but you know, one of the things uh, you wrote at the end of your book uh, that out of respect for your kids, you left out uh, Mm -hmm. a lot of details concerning them. Is there anything you wish you had put in the book, not necessarily about your kids, but anything you wish you'd put in the book or anything you left out or cut out maybe? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, No, no. I feel like I, I really were, it was a real challenge for me and I worked really, really hard to strike a balance of acknowledging that, yes, my children were there with me or yes, you know, these were real stories. Every story involves other people. And, um, I had a lot of worry going into the process of writing the book about like, how do you represent a story when you know that you're only, you only saw one half of it. Like everything I write, write about in this memoir is from my own perspective. And, um, that's really scary. Like, like thinking, if other people read this who I know in real life or who were there, you know, are they going to think that I'm like full of shit? Like that I just, you know, it just, it's really scary to me. But, um, so I feel like I tried really, really hard to strike a balance of, um, like, this is my perspective, (laughs) you know, this is my story or my version of events. And, um, you know, and, and as far as my kids were concerned, I just could not, uh, I just couldn't do a good job of like, really, it's a whole, that would be a whole other book, like being the parent of these poor kids that we dragged across the, you know, the world and, um, their kind of pain and suffering and, and also their, um, rebound and, and just their, their like awesomeness as human beings. I just could not, it, it, it would, it would have been a really long book if I tried to include it all and do a good job. So, 
I just thought, okay, well, you know, we're going to leave that out. And, um, I think it's a whole story without it. So, um, there's, but there, yeah. So I think in the end, I, there's nothing that I just go, Oh, I wish I would have, you know, included, right. I don't know. I think it's, I think it's okay how it is. <laughs> yeah, and I understand the the kids thing. I can imagine the same thing with my kids. Now that they're older, um, do they look back on those days as is with some with some fondness at all? Do they have good memories about some of that time? Um, you know, it depends on I think maybe the moment. You know, like <laughs> when we're watching you know a National Geographic documentary and they're like, "Oh, I've been there and I've been there and I've been there." I think they really appreciate it. And you know, when they get to like when they're speaking fluent Spanish with our, you know, Latino neighbors or whatever, I think they feel really proud of their history. And, um, you know, so I think amongst their friends, they think it's really cool. Like, oh yeah, I grew up in Costa Rica or I, you know, whatever, I went to high school in Costa Rica. Um, but I think in regard to like me as their mom, <laughs> I think they're just sort of like, you're an asshole. You ruined my life. Like, why would you do that? <laughs> well, you know, you could have done so, that right here in America, though. You realize totally. They, and they don't know. They just they don't. I'm like, you know that you would feel about this either way. If we'd stayed here, you'd been like, why didn't you ever give me more, you know, global perspective or like you'd be pissed no matter what. I can't win. So like, whatever. Yeah, that, that should be. You should do the mother's book. You got that one down. Oh um, God, my but, kids would die if I was like, I'm writing a parenting book. Well, you ought to do that if they ever threaten you with anything. So you know, I still haven't written the book on parenting yet, and uh, tell your oh. stories so that you can just hold that over their heads for a while. Um, yeah. You know, in your in your journey though, you're you're really both kind and very honest about your foray into the church world for the first time. I, I love the story because it was I, I so recognized the uh, land of breast milk and honey. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. But, but that seems to have been a real t- turning point uh, for you. Was it just weariness or a culmination of the weirdness of the Alpha Church woman, or what that sort of led to your epiphany that something that something was amiss here? I think it was a combo, and I. Ch- I try to kind of like paint this picture in the book of just sort of who I was born to be, like who I am as a person is kind of contemplative and, and I'm always thinking about these things and always have this kind of why in the back of my head and, and who I, who I was introduced to God as, as a young child was this God of questions and this God of like, you know, we, we see of seeking and like wondering and not of not these pat answers. And so just walking into church as a young adult, um, with that as my, both my personality and my perspective on God, I think it was inevitable. Like that eventually I would just be like, what the, wait, what, what are we doing? What is this? You know? And that the, the women, those like, yeah, the alpha, alpha women, um, you know, that, are like, they, it's so clear. It's so black and white to them and they have all these answers and they just speak with such authority. Um, it was inevitable that we would kind of butt heads, I think, because I, I just couldn't get on board with it. It just seemed like, like you're saying these things, but when I really examine this, like, you know, with the, the quiet time thing, and I wrote about this in the book of like this, this, like the sacred cow of quiet time in the, in the Christian evangelical church. And, you know, making this demand of these moms with young children and babies and who are up all night breastfeeding and who are so exhausted that their heads are on backwards. And then you say, well, get up at 5am because you've got to get your quiet time in or you're not a good Christian. You know, I was just like, no, that's just not true. Like, I feel like that's not correct. And when we're talking about it in these terms of like, this is how you have to do it. Um, it was kind of offensive to me. So it was just inevitable. I think that I would sort of part ways with those, with the good Christian ladies, you know? Well, even at that point, did you, were, could you sort of see behind their mask that they were afraid like everybody else and they were just ex- expressing it in a different way? 
Um, at that point, I don't, I don't think I saw it that way. I think I saw it as um, they thought they knew better. You know, I think I was I, maybe even a little bit more re- rebellious spirited about it than that. Like, I just was like, well, you think you're right, but I think you're wrong. And, um, you know, I, I don't think I really understood that at that point, because I was so new to, you know, Christianity and to even just faith as a lifestyle, like trying to follow a, a Jesus and follow God. And um, I, I don't think I really understood that we were all wearing these masks. You know, I felt like I was the faker. I was getting it wrong. And I was, you know, the one that was like, like, you know, up, up turning the apple cart or whatever, however you say that. And, um, everybody else kind of had it right. And so it did, it, it felt like, oh, I'm, I'm, it felt so taboo to ask questions. It felt so like I was doing some like big rebellious thing because I was getting it wrong or something. But now, you know, looking back, I just go, oh yeah, we were all doing our best. You know. So at the time, you weren't like hearing other uh, other voices of, of, of faith and things. It's pretty much what you heard at the church. Yeah. I mean, I was like evangelical church girl, you know, like right. that's I walked into it. I embraced it. I became it as best I could. And then the, the, pro- the process of deconstruction really started in my own um, in my own heart before I ever really started to pursue that kind of like community of like-minded thinkers or community of question askers or doubters or, you know, however you want to describe it. But, um, yeah, it was definitely a process for me. Well, I really, I I enjoyed that part a lot because, you know, uh, folks coming in with a fresh set of eyes, you realize those of us who grew up in it and are so damaged don't realize what we're doing to everybody else. I I was raised in it. Not honestly, by the time you're five years old, if you've been in uh, an evangelical church, uh, the thing you learn best is how to lie. Because this, this <laughs> dishonesty is the key to conformity, and it keeps uh, people from finding reality. And, mm-hmm. you know, the kids who are, are, are elevated are not the kids who say, hey, I'm having trouble, I'm sleeping around with my girlfriend and stuff. It's the ones who lie about not doing it, but they're doing it anyway. Mm-hmm. Those kids are mm-hmm. marginalized, and so the outliers have no place. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's why you I have watched that in your so email. many people, you even s- seminary people. I've watched people I went to seminary with as they got older. Um, they uh, essentially realized at some point they've probably just been inoculated against any sort of future expression of faith and they're done with it, you know? Yes. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You wrote that in, you wrote in one of your, in your email to me um, that you grew up, it says something like I grew up in the, I grew, I was raised Baptist, which is where I learned to lie or something like that. And I was like, oh, that's, that's a great first sentence of a book like <laughs> yeah, really that is such a great <laughs> beginning of a memoir i watched those so guys true. when the southern baptist split and of course you know it, it never ends today one of the uh the, the largest seminaries in the world southwestern baptist theological their president had told some woman whose husband was beating her up to go mm-hmm. back and pray for him you know i mean just oh thinking, yeah how do we but it it um you know those of us who um unfortunately those who become our pastors and missionaries tend to be the ones who just stay in line and conform and they mm-hmm. have that and the ones who don't just sort of have a quiet desperation I've seen too many people this is what hurts me Jamie more than anything is people who try it and think it's their fault not that there's a phony faith you know a phony religion being prevented they think I'm not good enough to pull this off right right and it's yeah, still yeah. a glaring problem in our evangelical, church, evangelical churches no matter whether we're talking about the, the ones that are trying to be cool or just the traditional ones uh, oh totally it's, you got four or five things you need to do, and if you do these things, everything will be okay, and it's not okay. 
Right. And it's a lie. The actual gospel that they teach is a lie. Like all you need is Jesus and Jesus will make everything better. That is a lie. And when people believe it and they try to live their lives around that as a theology, they only end up feeling desperately let down or broken or unable to participate. Like it's, it's so ugly to me. And that is, that's what we're, we spew as missionaries and, and our, you know, as our pastors. And, and it's just, it, it does, it leaves people with this dichotomy where they have to choose, oh, I'm, I've followed Jesus and it was supposed to fix everything and it didn't. So either I should maybe just give up on following Jesus or I'm so broken that it just doesn't work for me. And, and that's like, those are terrible choices. <laughs> Yeah, I used to tell a friend of mine, we we played in bands and stuff, that we were going to rewrite the song American Woman and call it American Jesus, Stay Away From Me. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Um, do, you, do you find that, though, that, that you do hold out hope that those of us who are outliers and refuse to give up our faith can change the situation? Absolutely. I think we are changing the situation. I don't even think there's a question. I think, um, I mean, for me, it's really been like I had to divorce myself from evangelicalism. Like, I needed to sort of draw a line in the sand, if you will, and just say, I'm not gonna, I'm not one of you. Um, but I am a Christian and I am a follower of Jesus and I'm out here in the wilderness, you know, with my people and we are actively pursuing what it looks like to live, um, a life that reflects the teaching of Jesus. And, um, you know, so, and I think there are so many of us out here and we are, we have a passion for, for justice and for equality and for, um, faithfulness and, you know, to really, I think, reform the ugly, ugly representation of the church in the world. And, um, I absolutely think that we are kind of the, like, we're so honored that we get to witness this incredible shift. And I think, you know, it will be reflected in the history of the church that, that this change is happening. Well, let's, let's move into there from a discussion of missions. Um, what yeah. what do you think among both people within the church and outside the church, some of the biggest myths about missionaries are? Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, within the church, it's just gross. It's that we just make this assumption. If someone says they're a missionary, you're, you're just like, oh, you're awesome. That's so cool. I mean, it started the second I started telling people that we were going to become missionaries. I was, it was just constant like back padding and like, Oh my gosh, that's so amazing. Like I could never do that. And I'm just like, no, you, you could like all, all I did was volunteer. I literally have no skills, no training, no education. No, there's no, I, I just volunteered and said, I'm a missionary. And then the church was like, you're awesome and amazing. So I think that's a huge farce, you know, that, um, I think, missions draws a certain type of person. Um, I think there, you, you have to be a little, have a a certain dose of arrogance in order to even believe that you are called by God to go out into the world and do great things. Um, and you know, I think the church lie that, that says all you have to do is show up like, Oh, if you, if you volunteer, if you raise your hand and then you just show up in the world, God will use you to do amazing things. Um, that is such a cheap, like gross way to send people all over the world to do whatever. And in the church, we just were like, as long as all I have to do is write a check and then somebody else will go and God will use them to do amazing things. I don't even have to check on it. I don't even have to, to like find out if, if we're right. Um, and so what we have is just this, um, glut of human beings leaving from the, you know, white evangelical church of 
the North of North America and going all over the world and trying to like export this thing that we've created. And, um, and it's not good. And nobody in the church will say that out loud because we're all just supposed to say, well, God's going to do something with it. Like, and so there are no parameters, there's no measures, there's no anything. It's just, it's a mess. Billions and billions of dollars that we spend every year on missions and there's no accountability, no, um, measures to say, Hey, is it successful? Are we helping? Are we doing any good? So, um, it's a yeah. fast track though, to being among the elite. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- cause you hear growing mm-hmm. up and I'll tell you a couple of stories about, I mean, you would hear pastors, you know, we would, during the summers, they would bring in missionaries on furlough, basically having to come in and beg for money. I remember yep. one so vividly a Sunday night, they came and did their slideshow. And this is way back in the day. This is way before. And this is 60s kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Bringing their little slide projector in their slideshow. Beg for money. I never saw one who looked happy. And I was watching one couple from Brazil. I don't remember their name, but I do remember their faces so clearly as they were packing up that slideshow. They had an, an aura of sadness about them that hurt my heart. Mm. And I was a, just a little kid. And there was something about it. I thought, why, why is this making me feel so bad, you know, and so sad? But mm-hmm. but meanwhile, they're saying, well, these are our missionaries, our best. Even the Southern Baptists always had, they always joked about, they had basically had two saints, Lottie Moon and Annie Armstrong, but they wouldn't let them preach in their churches, you know, <laughs> <laughs> the two yep. missionaries. Uh-huh. And, um, but you, you mentioned figures. I, I, I'm a data guy. I looked up stuff just because as a journalist, I always want to be able to, the, the best data I could find was uh, 2014, 35 billion spent on missionary work. Mm-hmm. And, it was annually in, that, that year. Yeah, yeah. Well, last year it was fifty-three okay, billion. Yeah, last year it was fifty-three billion globally. Wow! So it's 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 steamrolling ahead. It's an industry. Yeah, but, for but sure. Let's be generous and say twenty-five percent of that, and I think we are being generous, is used for hospitals, relief workers, that kind of category mm-hmm. that, that mm-hmm. there's not as much of an agenda attached to. You know, those folks yeah. are frontliners, and that still leaves you know forty billion dollars or whatever mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. white people taking trips to foreign lands. Um, yep. And in your book, you sort of write about how y'all were sort of seduced by this siren call as well. Mm-hmm. And now you're spending your time warning others about uh, the real song of the sirens and not to land on the rocks. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, honestly, and it was a, it was rough. Like, like I sold everything. Like we sold all of our stuff. We dragged our kids to a foreign country. And and while we genuinely, genuinely thought like this is absolutely what we're supposed to be doing with our lives. Like that was not false. Looking back, there was there were factors, right? There were other things that made me more willing, I think, than maybe other people to like do all these things that, you know, my marriage was super broken. My my um my children, you know, I, I wanted some, I wanted a different life for my kids and I was super broke. Like I've struggled with mental illness my whole life, basically of depression and anxiety. And I just thought, you know, I'm supposed to do this. I'm supposed to make this big sacrifice. And if I go, if I sell everything and I become a missionary, then surely God will fix all of this stuff. So it was, there was a selfish motivation, um, that really drove a lot of that too. And, you know, and of course we all have like selfish, we all have stuff, but, um, it, it did make it easier for me because I thought, oh, God's going to, I'm, I'm bargaining, right? I was like bargaining with God to fix me and fix my family. And, um, you know, so there, you end up with like hundreds of thousands of people like me or, um, you know, just whatever regular old people in the, in the field. And we're like deifying them on the ground in the U S saying, Oh, you're so amazing. God is using you. You're like a, you know, you're this miracle showing up in a foreign country. And, 
it's a lot of pressure. And so, you know, I don't really, I don't blame missionaries that fall into that trap of like, you immediately have to start telling great stories about your life and every little thing about your life has to become this big, like eternal moment of salvation. You know, every time you, you know, say, God bless you to your grocery store clerk, you're doing the work of the mission. You know, it's just, it's garbage. It's gross. But I don't, I totally understand how, how people kind of like wind up in that space, you know? Um, but, but it is definitely, it's an industry. And when you really start looking at it as an industry, um, you can see that it's really broken. Like if we're spending $50 billion a year, even if we were spending it all on like great things, um, well, especially if we we're spending, spending it on great things, the world would look different. But even if we were spending $50 billion a year on like super mediocre projects that are only helping a little bit, the world would look different. Like right. something should be different. Um, and it's not. And so this thing that we say where we're like, oh, it changed, you know, I was planting seeds or it changed a heart or whatever. It's just not really true. Um, and I lived it for five years. Like this is not me just like going on a short term mission trip and being like, oh, I didn't feel like I did any good. No, this was five years of really like watching and witnessing and working and, um, a lot of, you know, difficult conversations with people on the ground and with local, our local friends who were not churched and were not part of that, like, weird, nebulous, like, brainwashed missionary crowd. And they were just like, this is dumb. You know, Costa Rica is overflowing with missionaries. Like, there are, they're everywhere. And close. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's just not doing any good. It's just a bunch of weirdos, a bunch of weird white people. No revolution. Like, nobody shooting at anybody. You can go there and... Yeah, yeah. I know. Rough. It's a rough assignment, <laughs> you know. But, yeah. Well, you know, you mentioned that just those, those figures, when you look at the figures that say something like $3 million would buy mosquito nets for all of Africa, you know, you just think <laughs> we're talking about billions here. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, what do you think would have happened, though, if your husband had called your bluff? In your book, you talk about you were fighting right before you went and just oh, called yeah. him and said, we're not going. Where would you be today? Yeah. I, I don't I'd, you know, to be honest, I think I'd be in a really similar space, but I just would have started writing about um, the church. You know, I, I think I really think I was already on that path of like looking at the church as a whole and really missions, the brokenness of missions. It's a symptom. It's just a it's just a that's what you're going to get from a broken church. And um, so I think I was already on that path of sort of deconstruction and questioning and starting to see that, gosh, these things that we say really don't add up or, you know, um aren't really doing a lot of good in the world. And, and so I, I think on a personal level or on a faith level, I'd probably be in a really similar space. Um, you know, being able to write about it from abroad, I think was obviously just more appealing. People were interested cause I was living in Costa Rica. So it kind of like launched me into the writing world, but, um, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I'd be, yeah, I, I, that's a good question. I really can't really say, I guess for sure. You mentioned in the book a couple of things, but were there any war stories of short-term missionaries that came down that just you, you couldn't get the cringing out of your system until they were gone? Oh, so many. So many. <laughs> I, I can't even begin to tell you, Greg, like how many friggin' weirdos like just show up out in the world under the, like in the name of Jesus as missionaries. And it's not just short-termers. It's honestly the weirdest ones are long-termers. But, um, you know, there there were so many people that were just like, 
appalling human beings, you know, where you're just like, oh, I, I don't even want to be in the same room with you. Um, you know, I, we, I'm trying to think of like a great example, but, um, there were always just like super rude people. They were always super indelicate. Like people just didn't understand that they were in a different culture and needed to behave a different way. Lots of very needy, like I'm going to go be a, I'm going to go on a short term mission, but I'm diabetic and gluten free and I can't actually work because my arms are very tired and um, like very I brought my odd. chauffeur with me. <laughs> yeah. Like very odd, like very needy, like, like I'm going to come, you're, I'm going to come quote unquote serve. And in fact needed to be served like minute to minute in very, very special people. Right. I'm just very special. I have special dietary needs. I have special medical needs. I have special. And yet they're coming on like a, a work trip or something. And you're just like, Oh, this doesn't make any sense at all. Um, but you can't, there's no room in the church to say that, to say like, ah, <laughs> Once somebody says, oh, God called me, then we're just supposed to shrug our shoulders and be like, oh, well, then I guess you should go. Um, you know, but but really there should be somebody saying, you know, when you say God called you to, you know, go on a work trip, but you don't have arms, um, maybe that's not the best fit for you. And let's find let's find a good fit. Let's find a space where you can be really um, helpful. I've been seeing, and this just, it just, just so resonates. I've been seeing on Facebook lately parents trying to raise funds for their high school kids to go to Mexico this summer to construct houses. I've got to mm-hmm. be honest with you. I believe there are some people in Mexico who know how to build houses. Oh, and, yeah. And to Weird, pay right? $4,000 for some kid to go down there and just mm-hmm. get in the way. I mean, it's just incredible. That money could go a long, long way in those places. I mean, even even where you're at, the cost of living wasn't terribly bad. If they'd sent the money instead of the kids, what, what you guys could have done with that? Oh, Totally. Totally. And it's just, I mean, it's absurd. It's so funny because like in the States, we pay Mexicans, like we underpay them. We pay them under the table so we don't have to pay taxes to build our houses. Right. Like we literally are looking for Mexican men to come in and build our houses really cheap. But then we think we need to send our teenagers to build their houses or shacks or whatever. (laughs) It's such a, it's just such a joke. And you know, the things and then the the weird like excuse making. So then we say like, oh, but it's a it's a trip. It's going to change my kid's heart. Like they need to be quote unquote exposed to poverty, which is disgusting. We don't expose you expose people to you know, like animals in a zoo. We don't mm-hmm. expose our children to poverty. Um, it's just like a, a it's gross and it doesn't make sense. But um, you know we 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 tell ourselves that if we send our kids on this $4,000 trip, then they're going to come back and they're going to be different. And guess what? They're not like, that's just not true. They're not, they might be grateful for two weeks. Like, Oh, I just, and they'll say these obnoxious things like, Oh my gosh, I just, I open my, there's just so much food in my refrigerator. Oh, Oh gosh. I just have so much. And then at the same time, they're saying like, but those poor people were so happy. Like I really learned about joy from seeing poor people. So it's this total, like, it, it doesn't make any sense. So we're, they come home saying how happy they inspired they are by the like poor people because they were happy and also how grateful they are to be quote unquote blessed by God because they live in the U.S. and have a cell phone and, ha- and have a food, you know, fridge full of food and whatever tap water in there 
Something to talk about Same. while standing in line for the new iPhone. is the Totally, yeah. <laughs> like, I just got back from Mexico, you guys, and we built three shacks for families <laughs> while you're getting your 10, your iPhone 10 or whatever. Like, yeah. okay, cool, yeah. But your heart was, like, really changed, right? <laughs> and they don't realize that, and you wrote this in the book, that the people who live in these places that they're invading know that they're a joke, and they play them. Oh, completely. It is mutually beneficial exploitation. Like, we are exploiting each other. We are sending our kids down to for these feel-good moments, and we are exploiting poor people in order to feel better about our own faith journey or whatever. And they are absolutely exploiting us to get free shit, and they should. I mean, I would do the same thing. Um, and so it's not really helping anyone. It, we're, it's just it's just a, a kind of a gross, like, we're all just patting each other on the back and and not a lot of, like, good, solid change or growth is happening. And that's not to say that nothing good comes of it, because it does. Everybody has some anecdote, some story, and, um, you know, good thing. God is God is good to rege- redeem our garbage. I truly believe that. Um, but that doesn't mean that the standard should be garbage. <laughs> well, yeah, just because somebody in prison who was a mass murderer has some good stories to tell. Right, really right. Help the exactly. people who are buried, you know. Right. It's a, that's like that the that Baptist the the dude in the news right now that's yeah. like, well, you know what? We we redeem we send abused women back into their marriages because this one guy was so changed and he found Jesus. No, no. That that is not because God redeemed one moment for one dude, if that's even true. If that's we true. Do, yeah. yeah. We do not then say the standard is we just like shit all over everyone and mm. God will fix it. No, it's not okay. And when I saw that, he was one of the architects of the Southern Baptist Fundamentalist Overthrow. He and a guy named Judge Pressler, they sort of mm-hmm. taken over everything. But when I saw that story, there's a, uh, are you friends, are you, you know Ernest Ainsley, the faith healer guy, the guy with a bad um, toupee, baby, baby. I think I've heard of him. Yeah, yeah, he was big some time ago. He's still around, but I, just a complete, but I will say one time someone had written him a letter. This woman had written him a letter saying her husband had been beaten her and was abusive. And he said, I want you to get a pencil and paper. And he goes through this long thing about how to find a good divorce lawyer and get out of the house. I thought, wow, this guy actually did something good for once in his life. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. then I saw that today and I thought, oh my gosh. I want, to, I want to ask you about something you didn't touch on in your book. And we're, when we're talking about missions, something that's even more of an affront to them. It's not nearly as much money. I think the, the last figure I found was $4 billion. Trips to the Holy Land. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you want to find yeah. something to poke people at, they're still doing it everywhere. They've been doing this for generations. Take, mm-hmm. pa- I think pastors get a free trip if they take a bunch of people with them. You know, I think that's. Kind so of yeah, idea. there's so many kickbacks for sure. But trips to the yeah. first of all, if you read the scripture, I don't. The word "holy land" is just that, that just so bizarre to begin with. The people think there's pieces of dirt that are holy. Mm-hmm. But that, that, I just was stunned. Four billion annually. Not really, because I see people doing it all the time. Multiple trips. Mm-hmm. I mean, just. Mm-hmm. It's that baffles me. Even even people who can convince yeah. themselves they're doing something good on a short term mission trip, even if they're not, the um, other is just pure vanity. It is. It is, and it's, and it's, and that's the thing. Here's the thing. I am all for vacations. Like, if you if there's someone's place special in the world and you want to go visit that place, I am all about it. Like, I think that tourism is a great industry for the world. I think it's great for people. It's great for jobs. It's great for like you know, that you talk about perspective or whatever. I am so on board 
call it a vacation. Don't, and don't ask Do me not, for $100 not, to contribute right. to your trip. Yes, exactly. I'm not going to pay for it, but hey, you should definitely save up. And if you want to go see the quote unquote Holy Land and you want to see all the spots that, that, People have literally been arguing about for thousands of years about whether or not they're like Charlemagne's mother. Uh, no, I mean Constant, uh, Constantine's yes, mother yes. named all the spots, and that we're called. right. Yeah. Right. If you want to like go see the hole that <laughs> Moses pooped in, like go for it. But don't. But call it a vacation. Like don't call it a pilgrimage or some like. Just let's quit being ridiculous. And the truth is, I went. I went um, on a trip to Jordan last year, and you know saw these. I'm air quoting here, holy sites, because I'm not really sure. But um, it was an amazing trip. It was amazing. And honestly, it, it helped me. It gave me like biblical perspective on the stories of the Bible and the distances and the way things may have looked. And it was awesome. I like, I totally was like, if anybody has an opportunity to do this and can afford to pay, to pay for themselves, they should like, it was really cool. Like, but that's what it was. It was a really cool vacation. Mm -hmm. Um, but churches organize groups, and there's other needs that just, mm -hmm. you know, are blaring. I don't know. That one just struck me I because know, I was looking I at the missions thing. I was thinking about I, I've seen that my whole life, you know, these fundraising Holy Land trips. And mm -hmm. and even those are not as weird as the Christian Alaskan cruise. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I know. The, like, Amy Grant cruise or whatever. And you're just like, what? That's weird. Like, that, that that takes, like, all of these weird principles of, like, you can eat for 24 hours a day and lay around and not move your body. And, like, like all of these things that you just go, wait, aren't we, aren't we, like, <laughs> are we opposed to whatever gluttony? Or are we opposed, like, aren't we supposed to be, like, this is not how we live. Um, but then, you know, if you get to do it with your favorite Christian author or something, then all of a sudden it's, like, woo-woo, Christian. <laughs> I don't know. It's so weird. And yet, you know, we don't want to. We don't want, like, we don't want to touch poor people. We don't want to be around homeless people. We don't want to deal with drug addicts. We don't want to help in our prisons. Like, we don't really want to do good things in the name of Jesus unless they, unless they are fun for us. Well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because I was going to get there. And, I, and I've, I've done a lot of work with addicts over the years and stuff. I mean, and, and the, the church wants people to find a shortcut. And the 12 Steps understands there's not one. And the mm -hmm. other thing you wrote about in your, your, your book some is... Um, in the, in a, and, of course, this is a very broad phrase, and it's, there are varying degrees all over the place, but mental illness, um, mm -hmm. uh, depression, and, you know, bipolar and all these things are just, I mean, more and more people are, are realizing some of their issues have come from being suffering, and no one ever identified it, and the mm -hmm. church doesn't have any idea what to do with that. Mm -hmm. Baptizing right, people does not help their mental illness. <laughs> no, it does not. No, it does not. I mean, it is so funny because we just— you know, we paint this picture of like, again, like if you have Jesus, Jesus will fix everything. And then when it doesn't, we just like, we're just going to sweep it under the rug. Like Christians are so bad at nuance and at, um, the, the confusion of like, if you're working with an addict, guess what? You're going to be disappointed. Like it's not fun and they're not going to really probably do what you want. And they Fifth, very 15 well percent make it long-term. Right. With a lot of support. With a lot of support. Yeah. And it's, and, and so, you know, it doesn't like actually getting involved in, in the lives of impoverished people or addicts or mentally ill, um, people, it isn't pretty and it doesn't, it doesn't usually add up to this great Sunday morning sermon that we expect or want. And so 
instead of doing it, we like the church is just like, well, let's just ignore that and go on a cruise. <laughs> like, and tell some amazing story about how like, I, you know, it was such a God thing. I ran into someone I went to kindergarten with on an Alaskan cruise with Amy Grant or whatever. Like, it's so weird, but we, the church is obsessed with these like feel good stories and, um, and absolutely at the detriment to the detriment of the gospel and actually like getting involved in helping people. And there's still so many people waiting for their church's permission to do anything. And that's the, I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, I'm waiting for the sermon, uh, you know, that Jesus is okay with penicillin and Welbutrin. You know, he's okay with both of those. Yep. Those are both yep. medications that he's okay with, you know? Yeah. Um, but it, it just, there's, it makes people so, again, people that I run into, and back to the, uh, the addicts and stuff, a lot of them that I, and this is what breaks my heart so much is they don't digest the concept that, that the religious approach is bad. They digest, I'm, I can't do this. I'm not good enough to do this. Mm-hmm. It just kills mm-hmm. me to try to explain, no, it's not you, you know? It's not you. Yeah, it's not you. You that. The, that it's a lie that you're, you're they, you've been fed a lie that you're this failed you because you didn't do it right, and that's just not true. It, what what failed you is the world. You were wounded and injured, and you l- found really unhealthy ways to feel whole and healed, and that's it. Like, and then the church is like, no, 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 you just need Jesus. It's it's really. Well, I had, I had a, fresh a, a, a friend that had never had a chance in life. I mean, just from the very beginning, really, if you read, you wouldn't believe. I mean, Charles Dickens would have said, no, nah, nobody had it that bad. Oh, um, gosh. But went through addiction, had been had some problems with the law, and his family fell apart, and he had another court date coming up. Started going to church. His church baptized him. He started doing all the stuff everybody told him to do. And about four months in, he came and said, well, they tell me I'm going to heaven. Can, why don't I just kill myself now? Because I got a court date coming and things still suck. And, you know, I've done everything everybody told me to do. Then isn't suicide the most natural thing? So I'm going to heaven, you know, and that's a natural question. That's a very natural right. question to ask if you've been told yeah. it's totally. about what's coming up, not what's here. Right. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. If the, if the goal and the, if the golden ticket is after all of this pain and suffering, you will die and be with God. Yay. You, I would absolutely suicide makes the most sense instead of, Oh, we're the church and it's our job to bring the kingdom of heaven on earth. Like we're, that's my job in, in that guy's life is to, how do I bring the kingdom of heaven to that guy's life right now while he's alive? But that's way more complicated and it expensive is. and painful. And you can't raise funds on that. And you can't have Mm-mm. videos about people having, you know, wonderful, and you just can't you can't promote yourself. You can't hype that, and that's that's mm-hmm. the other thing. You know, I mean, hype is the, is the king, and that makes me wonder. I mean, now that you you did mention it is a major industry, what kind of uh, kickback are you getting from the missions industry? What kind of stuff are they saying about you? <laughs> well, I'm not their favorite. <laughs> I'm not, you know. I've been I, well, invited to speak at the places yet. No. <laughs> oh gosh, I know. Yeah, you know what? I actually get invited to speak pretty often at um, like little Christian colleges and universities. They'll bring me in for their like right before spring break to speak at their mandatory chapel, which is always <laughs> super awesome. And it's kind of cool because you have these like mission missiologists, or they like the, the heads of the missions departments who are like, we know we've got this wrong for a long time and we need to exact change, but they also want to keep their jobs. And so they could kind of bring me in to drop the hammer and just sort of speak on like, Hey guys, here's how missions is a clusterfuck. Like <laughs> you've got changes to make and, um, and just to sort of start those conversations, which for me is really fun. I love it. Um, and I really value those, those leaders who are you know brave enough to kind of bring in this, this black sheep of missions to speak. But, um, 
you Especially know, right I, before they go on their spring break missions trips. Oh, I know. And I get to say that. Like, when, when you're on a plane and you're all matching T-shirts next week, hey, look around. Like, really look. See what happens when a bunch of 21-year-old girls shows up to build a house for people in Mexico. Are there any men around? Or are you emasculating them and driving them away from their families? Hmm. <laughs> like, think about it. And so that's really fun for me to kind of, like, plant those seeds. Um you know, the seeds of dissent and doubt. I love it. Um, but the, the missions world is, is funny because there are a lot of people that really see the problems. Um, it's not even the missions world. You know what it is? It's, it's paid ministry because once you're in it, you're screwed. Like there's not a lot, you, you work yourself out of a job in the real world once you get into paid ministry. And so you have all of these people in the missions world that really recognize like, okay, this is a problem. And this is, you know, this is, we're exploiting people and this is like, we're spreading the patriarchy and we're colonizing. Like They see these issues, but their livelihood and their capacity to feed their families is lined up with getting a paycheck based on being missionaries. And so, you know, I, I get a lot of emails, a lot of emails from people that are like, I'm trapped in this. I don't know how to get out. Um, but I agree with you, you know, well, and for then, decades, they're used to, I mean, it's not as much true now because the church is slowly shrinking, you know what I mean, in terms of mm-hmm, jobs mm-hmm. And, and money and income. But it used to be, there was always a, and I saw this in two different seminaries, maybe, I'm trying to be kind, 25% that just saw it as an easy paycheck because it really was. It, they yes, played golf it, all the time and they, they were really mm-hmm. good at speaking and they could speak on Sundays and mm-hmm. and it was not a hard way to make a living. Yep. And that's the thing is like people... This is one thing that I saw immediately, like as soon as we got into the mission field, people who came into the mission field from the real world, like people who came from real jobs in the real world were generally way harder workers, totally self-motivated, like actually genuinely like looked around and went, what the hell? Like this is weird because it was so easy and you just make your own schedule and you can show up to work or not and like And then people who came out of seminary or the ones who were like, I've dreamed of being a missionary since I was five years old. They were lazy. They were, and I am totally generalizing. I get that. Don't email me. I don't care. (laughs) But, um, like they were lazy. They were entitled. They were self-absorbed. I mean, the the difference between the ministry mindset and the non-ministry mindset was like night and day. And, and pretty much everybody like the majority of the people I can think of that, like I went through say language school with, where it was like a hundred wannabe brand new missionaries, the ones that came out of the real world, they're all back in the real world. They, they were like, you just, at some point it's so frustrating. You can't even abide it. And you have to just go back. You have to get out of it because it's so like unhealthy and you just, and frustrating. So well, I had um, a guy who has really been important in my life, Steve Brown, who I had only a couple of years ago on the podcast, and he always would tell you uh, it's better to be good for nothing than to get paid for being good. Yes. And, oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah. And that was sort of his mantra to people who'd come up to. And he taught in seminaries and did stuff. Um, <laughs> one of the things I didn't want to bring up is there have been some pretty incredible voices of culture that have shined some pretty bright light on issues raised about white people in Christian missions. Uh, you saw, you see the silence about the... Japanese missionaries. Did you see that movie? Oh no! Need to see that one. Oh, oh no! It's on my list. Yeah. I have not seen it. Um, I know I need to see it. Remember all the people in it, but yeah, it's uh, it's uh, pretty well known folks in it. The mission mm-hmm. you probably saw with with uh, Robert De Niro. 
Uh, maybe not. Put that I'm, on your I'm list not... too. I'm just okay. saying. But the, but the other thing is, and if you haven't read this book, when we hang up, I'll get your information. I'll get you. A, if you have a Kindle, I'll send you a Kindle version of this. A book called. And this is this. When I read your book, I thought this book. And this book is not written by a believer of any stripe. But it's a, a book's called the Book of Strange New Things. It's Michael Farber who wrote Under the Skin and Crimson Petal in the White and a bunch of other things. Uh-huh. Um. But it's essentially sort of a sci-fi book about an evangelist that goes to another planet to escape bad things here, and it is it is so dead on. I mean, it, you, you will, you'll enjoy it. I promise you. Okay, I'll look but it up what, for what sure. Makes, what encourages me encourages me about that is there are people on the outside and the inside, you know, shining light on this darkness and trying to you know mm-hmm. make something mm-hmm. make something. Yeah, uh, and honestly, that's the only way. That's like the first step to moving forward. Is I, I, and that's the thing, the pushback that you asked about, like with the missions, it's always you're divisive, you're discouraging. That's what people, they always tell me. Oh, and also you swear too much, or whatever, who cares? So, um, but the divide, like, I'm so okay with being device, like d- dividing myself from things that are broken and, and hurtful. Like when people are like, oh, you're divisive and that's not okay. I, my, my gut response is I absolutely want to be divided from cancer. <laughs> Like if it's unhealthy and it's harmful and it's hurting people, I'm super, super comfortable, um, taking my carving knife to that, to that, like, that's okay with me. And, um, and I'm equally as comfortable discouraging young wannabe missionaries from doing, just going out into the world in the name of Jesus with no qualifications and no preparation and no idea of how, like really how the economy or the world or politics works. And, um, yeah, I'm happy to discourage them. I'm I'm happy to do that. So because that's how we move forward, because that same kid that wants to go change the world, if you tell them, hey, this is not the way, they'll find a better way. Like they will seek a better way. Um, And that's and so I don't know how to fix it all, but I know somebody does. And it's only going to happen if we talk about it. Do you think if you were a man with this message, you would be you you would have made more gained more ground because sometimes women in the Christian mm-hmm. still don't get it taken as seriously? Oh yeah, yeah for sure. I'm you know quote unquote emotional or shrill or um, yeah. <laughs> I definitely think there's a sense of like head padding, like oh there's Jamie, she's just sassy. <laughs> You know like it, nobody would ever talk about a man that way. But you know what it would be if you were a man? It'd be a prophetic voice, Jamie. Totally. Oh my gosh, yeah. For sure. Like, oh, powerful prophetic voice of for sure. Um, but you know, I'll take what I could get. I don't care. It's it's for me, I love I, I honestly see women at the forefront of so many movements that to be to to be um uh, to have like the, uh, the majority of my readership and the majority of these conversations that I get to um, lead or, or speak into, I should say, um, that they are ha- being had by women. It doesn't surprise me at all. And I love it. You know, I just go, yeah, because we're women and we're going to lead forward. And um, and that's how it's always been, you know? Yeah. And jumping back mm-hmm. a bit in the book, you were talking about your, your growing up and that uh, – you grew up in a home that practiced some Jewish traditions till your dad decided you don't need a Christmas tree. And you got it. Yeah. Christmas presents are better than Hanukkah presents. Let's face it. They kind of are. Like, yeah. they kind of, yeah, it's true. Like, you just, it's, more, like, it's more exciting. You're like, oh, a fat stranger came into my house and left these gifts for me all at once. You get to, like, do Santa and, like, 
just like, yeah, it's, it's so much more exciting. What, what did you bring out of that that you can see now that you didn't see earlier that has uh, influenced how you're able to approach people or see people who are hurting or struggling? Out of Judaism? No, just out of your growing up. Your Judaism, oh, I'm going to no. ask you about that in a second, too. But just out of the growing up, and you were pretty honest about trying to be a tough girl, but you really weren't that mm-hmm. tough and you struggled. How has that influenced how your vision towards other young women who are kind of growing mm-hmm. up in similar situations? I, I just think in general, I, I generally, my default is to feel compassion for people because I know how broken I was and I know how tough I came off. And even come off, like people think they know me, you know, they're just like, Oh, you're so tough. You're so whatever, but I'm, I'm just normal. <laughs> um, and, and just as a kid, you know, I grew up, I had so much anxiety as a very young child. I had, you know, night terrors. I didn't sleep. Like when I look at pictures of myself as a, even just like a six, seven year old girl, these dark circles under my eyes. And I just look at this girl who's smiling through, you know, with her little pigtails and, and I know like, Oh God, I suffered. I struggled. I was sad. I was lonely only I was scared, very scared. And, um, you know, so as I kind of grew into adolescence and took on this persona that I don't have to, I don't have to look scared. And if I don't look scared, people don't think I'm scared and I can just pretend to be tough. Um, but knowing that all of the like sadness and, and like the woundedness that I carried inside behind that tough girl facade, um, it just gives me a lot of, I think, compassion for people and just knowing like, yeah, you know, we're, we're all doing our best to get through a day. And, you know, sometimes the, the persona that we want people to, to believe that we are who we are is, is just not an accurate description. You know, it's not accurate and everybody's hurting and, you know, um, but I think just that general idea that like, we're all broken and we're all working really, really hard to do our best. Um, even when it doesn't end up, even when it doesn't work out well, um, I think that's probably what it carried out of my youth. Well, and, and, and back to the, the, the Jewish roots, uh, you mentioned it. D- does anything sort of uh, influence your faith experience? Do you still that resonate maybe during the high holy days or other times? you remember some of those things that are meaningful still? Oh, gosh, yeah. I, the, the Jewish holy days are so beautiful, and they're so meaningful. Like, there's so much... Um, there's so much goodness there of like learning. There's so many, so much to learn about who God is from, from the Jewish holy days and who, and what God wants for us as far as like this sense of like celebration and feasts and, um, and forgiveness and redemption. Like these are things that were built into the holy days. So, you know, you're actively remembering like, Oh, this is what God meant for me. This is what God wants for me. This is who God is. This is, um, this is, you know, what my role is between God and the world. And, and they're, they're, they're just these really rich, beautiful traditions. Um, and honestly, I am always like, I think I should just go be Jewish. I mean, I believe in Jesus, but like, I really need to like take that more seriously and incorporate more of that into my adult life. But I'm so lazy <laughs> and they take so much work and prep that I'm just like, I'll do it next year. <laughs> you love your Christmas tree. I mean, okay. I do. I do. I don't think I could ever get rid of that little, you know, Christian tradition. But um, yeah. Je- Jesus was right fond of the Jews as well. I understand that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Weird, right? <laughs> what about regular <laughs> spiritual practices? Is there anything you do regularly to feed your spirit? Um, I read the Bible. I pray. I, there's a little Episcopal church in town that I don't go to very often, but when I do, I feel very 
uh, deeply connected there. Um, I, I consider the time that I spend with my friends a spiritual practice. I mean, we really dive deep together and, um, and writing, I think has become a, a kind of cathartic, like this is how I work out my stuff thing for me. So, um, there's not really a part of my life that I think God is absent from. And so I don't have any huge need, like to have it all tightly nailed down as far as like, this is what I do. You know, it's kind of loosey goosey, but it works for me. How do you approach scripture? I talk to people a lot about that on this podcast. What, what is your approach to scripture? My approach to scripture is usually that sounds like very clinical. The way I just said, I know. Oh, excuse so, me, Mama. What is your approach to? Cl- you're under oath. So, Remember, you're under oath, Jamie. <laughs> yeah, quite academic, which I am not. So, um, my approach to scripture is as unacademic as I am. It's usually like, hey, didn't Jesus say something about something? And then I just open the Bible and start looking for it. Or, hey, wasn't there a story about what? Like, or, or like, doesn't it say something about 304 skins? And then I'm like, that's an interesting story. And I just want to find it. Like, it's usually just some question in my head where I'm like, is that really in the Bible? Or do I want to remember that story I read once? And, and, and then I just pursue it and see where it goes. But um, I don't, I don't have a real, like, disciplined approach to any of it because I just feel like I did that for so long. I did the evangelical like quiet time and the Bible reading and the journaling and like I did all the stuff and um and it was good. It was good for me. I'm not like in no way do I want to discount that. It was a good period of my life. It was very formative and helpful. Um but as I've sort of got I think grown up and let go of the rules um, I've just found a much richer, um, more like holistic, more natural connection with God and the world. And, um, and I, and so I just, I guess I just, uh, it's just like kind of hippie. I have like a hippie vibe, I think with my approach to scripture. Uh, you're not old enough to be a hippie, Jamie, but I appreciate, I'm not, the, I appreciate I you joining the tribe here. You're, you're welcome. You're welcome. We'll send you a membership Thank card. You. I'll, I'll put oh, the paperwork it's honorary. through for you. Yeah. I'll put the paperwork awesome. through for you. That's a huge <laughs> Although, honor. Like, with hippies, we don't have any paperwork, so you may wait a while on that one. I'm cool with that. That works for me. And I think what I was getting at with that clumsy question is a lot of people, you know, look at the Bible as a rule book or some sort of, mm. you know, literal and, mm. you know, that if that didn't break down before the Mel Brooks thing, History of the World, where he has the Moses with the 15 commandments. Did you see that? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It didn't break down before that. It's broken down since then. You know, yeah. it, it, how you see the Bible when you look at it, what are you, you know, what are you looking for other than just where's the, you know, cut all their foreskins off and build a mountain out of it? Yeah. At this point, I look for Jesus. Very little else is, is do I consider truly imperative and important. It's, it's, it's Jesus. What does Jesus say? Because the truth is, even if, even if Jesus, if Jesus wasn't the son of God, if Jesus wasn't born of a virgin, if Jesus was just this leader, um, and this was his teaching, it's so radical and so others focused and so selfless that I think if everyone followed the teaching of Jesus, like the world would be an incredible place. And it's so hard, like it's so much work, um, that it's, you know, I've been doing this for decades and I'm still, so bad at it um, that I just feel like it's it's a diff- it's such a lifelong process that there's so much value in what Jesus says. It is amazing how radical his words are. And even I mean, all these years later, you'd think they'd be dated, but this the radical mm-hmm. nature because, like you said, it's um, it, com- it presents challenges on every turn, mm-hmm. and that kind of leads into the next thing because you talked a little bit about this. Um, 
it's part. I think it's one of the threads in the book, at least indirectly, about you know we we come to our faith and either we were raised in it or come to a place uh, of faith and it's a place of construct that we seem to stay with until we scratch the surface and realize you know this this is pretty shallow. This doesn't seem to have as much to mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. So we hit this and people are writing about this a lot. You know, Richard Rohr's written a lot about other people. That leads us to deconstruction of everything we believe, and then we're left with a lot of questions. And it seems like you, uh, in the book and other places, are in the process of some sort of either new construction of faith with some good bones around it. Is that a fair assessment? I hope so. I mean, I, I don't want to sit in the rubble forever. It's um, easy to do, though. Yeah, <laughs> it really it is. is. You're talking about hard it work. Is. It is really because I've been I've sat in the rubble a long time. It, it's very yeah. difficult to say because you, people say reconstruction. To me, it's got to be new construction. Reconstruction is not going to work. My yeah. dad was a builder, and I know what happens if you tried to rebuild a house that burned around the bones that were there or tried mm-hmm. to do something that somebody else started. Uh, it mm-hmm. has to be from the ground up, or for me, it won't work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's I kind of talk about that in the book, that sense of like, you at, you at your whole, it's like destroying your childhood home, right? Dismantling it brick yep. by brick or taking a sledgehammer to it, and then you're sitting there in this pile of rubble. Well, it's not all bad. Even if you had like a terrible childhood, it's not all bad. There are these little bits and pieces that you sort of can collect and gather. Um, but finding those bits and pieces and determining what's worth keeping and what's not, it's exhausting. And, and truly, I think in our culture where we see everything and we know everything and we pick apart everything, I mean, it's so dangerous to float a new idea these days. Um, it's paralyzing. Like it is, there are so many people that just get to that space and then go, I am too scared to move forward because I don't want to create the next nefarious church thing. I don't want to be the next embarrassing Christian meme. I don't want to do the next dumb thing that we're all going to be rolling our eyes at in 10 years. Um, and so it takes a measure of courage, I think, to kind of stand up and dust yourself off and say, okay, I may not get it right. And based on my history, I won't get it right, but I'm going to try to move forward. I'm going to try something else. I'm going to, you know, I don't know, come up with something new. And, and so like, that sense of permission that that I think is really important. And I think a lot of people are looking for it right now in the same way that they kind of need permission to ask questions in church or to love their neighbors or to whatever. Right now, I think a lot of people just need permission to like stand up, right? Jesus heals the paralyzed, follow Jesus, like stand up and take a step. And if you get it wrong, be smart enough and introspective enough to say, you know what, that was probably not the right direction. I'm going to try again, you know? It is a it is the best time in my lifetime that to, to come to that place because there was you go back twenty thirty forty years and there was no place for people within the, I mean you were ostracized if not excommunicated I mean mm-hmm. for or branded in some way so have there been any writers or other people that have been a big influence on you as you have come into this con, this conclusion and this place of faith um you know I'm privileged to be part of a a group of friends who are writers, just really strong, smart women, um, who influence me every day. But, um, you know, I, I think over the years and whether or not I still follow these writers closely is it's really irrelevant, but like, it's always been the people who were on the kind of cusp on that, the margins of our, of the faith movement. And, um, you know, like the beginning of the emergent church or whatever we called it in the nineties or, you know, all that stuff. Like Rob Bell, you know, he came out and just said all these amazing things that really challenged me to look at 
look at faith in the church in a different way. And, and, you know, Donald Miller, he came out blue like jazz. That was such a like defining life-changing thing for so many people in Anne Lamott. And, you know, so in the nineties, there was this, like this awesome, um, kind of little parade of books that came out that were, they, they were just provocative, right? They just made you go, Oh my gosh, like, I don't have to agree. I don't have to see this the way everybody sees this. You know, and now I think we just have a, we have so many brilliant writers to choose from and to be influenced by. And, um, you know, I, I just, I, I couldn't begin to name because there's just, there's dozens and dozens, but, um, it's just cool. It's, it's really cool that there are just so many people who are kind of always pushing the envelope and, and like kind of allowing the rest of us to follow suit. It is cool. I wish we could come up with a uh, a, a faith uh, slanting uh, version of Me Too that we can all you know join. Mm-hmm. In. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, for sure. It's so nice to find your people. You yeah, know, just it be is. like, oh I, yeah, we're together in this. And it is like you're saying. You, you you when you do begin to you know I think I mentioned to you on email um, when Brian McLaren wrote a generous orthodoxy he was just vilified. You know I mean it was a time mm-hmm. when nobody was on board hardly with that at least no one. That had the money to, to you know, mm-hmm. and, yes, and uh, it, uh, yeah. it, but it was it was refreshing to the souls of us who've been struggling to figure out there's got to be something to this, but what is it, you know? And then when mm-hmm. you hear somebody else, uh, in one of the sections of your book was called Practical Magic. Um, what's the difference between practical magic and magic thinking? Uh, what's magic thinking? I don't know. Yeah, magic thinking <laughs> is sort of, uh, it, it, of course, there's a recovery phrase, but other people use it too. But the, it's the idea that uh, basically everything will work out okay. You know, it's, if I do this, mm. everything's going to work out okay. Mm-hmm. And Or, mm-hmm. you know, if I deny this long enough, it'll go away. <laughs> That's the kind of, those are yeah, examples of magic yeah, thinking. I see. I think because practical magic requires that you sh- you you do a pra- you do the practical thing, <laughs> right? It's not, you can't just say, God's going to fix this. I mean, the magical magical thinking in Christianity would be, I'm just going to volunteer as a short-term missionary. It doesn't matter if I'm qualified and God will do something great, right? That's so magical. Um, but practical magic, I think, um, affirms that we both have a role to play you and God. Like we all have to show up in our smartest, most practical spaces in the capacities that we have to lead or work or serve, like, like who you are as a person and your education and your, abilities, they actually matter and your skills, it matters. And your, you know, relational EQ, it matters. All of that, it matters. And when you lean into that space, it's very practical, right? This is who I am. This is what I can do. I'm going to do these things with these, you know, I'm going to measure with these, with these results uh, or against these results. And, um, when you do that, and I think when you do that in a reflection of who, of of the teaching of Jesus, when you do that, and then God does what God does, which is to show up and do his magic. Like amazing things happen. Amazing things happen. Like lives are changed and you will grow and mature and uh, you know, the world will become a better place, but, um, but it's not easy, right? right? Cause it's practical. So you have to like admit that, Oh, I'm not the best person or, Oh, I shouldn't go build a house in Mexico because that's not practical. <laughs> um, but when you do the practical thing and, God also is in that with you. Like it, it really, it's magical. It really is. 
And it's not always, and I think you, you mentioned this in the book, and, and it's not always the hardest thing. I mean, that's been the mm-hmm. sort of Protestant worth ethic idea. The harder it is, the more spiritual it is. Sometimes right. it's just the opposite. Right. I think Liz Gilbert in her book, Magic Lessons, I don't know why this reminded me of that, another magic, um, talked about, you know, it's not if it's not something that you're, you're already bent towards, you might not be the best person to do it, you know? Right, right. Yeah, um, but you're, like, not supposed to say that in the church. You're just, oh, no. like... Well, just saying no, that the fellow I mentioned earlier that had said, you know, it's uh, better to, to be good for nothing than to get paid for it. He, he'd always try to teach people to very early, he said, in their faith to say no and not explain yourself. Right. No <laughs> is a whole sentence. People so uncomfortable, but just let people get yeah. freaked out and walk away. But just don't explain yeah. yourself. Yeah. No is a whole sentence. That's right. Absolutely. And that's so funny because in the church we expect like, oh, you know, let me pray on that. Yeah. Let me let me <laughs> seek. Let me seek. The spirit. <laughs> You're just not allowed to say like, damn, that doesn't sound right for me. Let me pray on that is the, is the biggest no you'll ever get. Totally. It's the most Christian. It's like a, a Christian middle finger practically. Like, hell no. It's, that means hell no. That's right. Means. That's right. That's yeah. If so you were funny. in Starbucks and you overheard strangers talking about you, what would you hope they would be saying? Um, well, I would not want that to happen. I would die if I heard. <laughs> well, maybe, there, maybe one of them is reading your book and then would say, who is this person? I would hope person? that they would stop talking about me. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Um, I, gosh, that makes, that's such a, that makes me feel like queasy. Like I just, oh. Um, well, see, when you get old a, like I do, you start thinking legacy. So <laughs> I know, gosh. I'm so de- like detached from my book. And, I mean, I just feel like it's like an imaginary thing. Like I cannot believe that it's out there and that people are reading it. I, I seriously, I'm just like, this is so weird. Um, I think if I heard people talking about me, I would want them to, um, I would want them to be talking about that. I'm on it. Like that they think I'm honest, <laughs> um, or that they felt encouraged, you know, like those, those two things are pretty valuable to me that, 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 I, that people understand that the truth is important. Um, and that even in like, even as we break things down and this is the, mo- the most valuable feedback I get, the most feel good feedback that I get from people is that it, that my book encouraged them. Like, because that's what it's about. It's not like, don't go do these things. It's about like, what do we do and how do we ask questions and what happens when, when we really lean into our practical capacity and, you know, and so, yeah, I want them to feel like they heard a true story and it made them feel encouraged. Yes. That's awesome. And I wish every missionary on the field, whether they loved it or hated it, there is a significant number that would read that book and may not could even tell anybody they read it, but it would be a meeting mm-hmm. moment for them, you know, just to mm-hmm. let them know, Hey, we feel that way, but we, we can't afford to say it right now. We can't, we got nowhere to go. Yeah. To. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, if I hear that, but it would, yeah, you know, I think that's, that's how change will happen is when we really start doing a little self-examination. And I hope that this book or my story or whatever, like, I, I hope that it helps people on that journey, you know? Well, writing is very hard work, as we were talking about. What's your next book? You obviously got to be doing another book now that you've done one. It's, it's, you can't uh, stop. Can't stop at one. Gosh, you know, uh, can I? Can't no, I? <laughs> you cannot. No, you're not allowed to stop um, at one. Yeah. I... Yeah, I mean, I think I'll pick up where I left off on this one, which is sort of like like feet to the fire in the evangelical church as a, as a pastor's wife. Like, I really, you know, this book sort of ends with coming back to the U.S. after five years abroad and um, 
and so I think the next book will be a, more of a dive into actual like missions, you know, really like, and, and just the evangelical process and my own, you know, memoirish, but, um, I kind of wanted with this book to get these questions out of the way that I always get, which are like, Oh my gosh, you're so brave. How do you say the things you say? And, um, like, and who do you think you are? I wanted to answer those questions with this book. And before I really, you know, so, so this book is really heavy on the, like the memoir story. Like this is, this is, this was my journey and this is how it's all kind of fleshed out. Um, and so I think maybe with the next book dive a little bit deeper into, um, some of the missions stuff, you know, more stories about all that stuff and more, um, big questions and big picture, like what are we doing and how do we, how do we, how does Jesus fix it? Like, please Jesus fix it. Cause it's so bad. <laughs> so we'll see. Okay. When you wrote the other one, did you write every day and just, uh, um, no, <laughs> it took me a really long time to write it. I, I'm not, a, I'm not a natural writer. I don't have a lot of words. Like I'm not prolific. Um, it's, it's not like this, my dream come true to write books. It's very, it's a very hard work for me. And, um, which is funny cause it comes off as so casual and like just stream of consciousness. <laughs> but, um, but it, yeah, I, it's, it's definitely like if I'd write a second book, it will definitely, I hope to be a lot more disciplined um, and, and like get in there every day and just get it done. I don't know. This one took me a long time to write. Can, so. can, can I offer an observation if you don't mind? Yes, don't, of course. Would you, would you in the, in the future, at least consider, stop saying I'm not a writer. Um, <laughs> you finished a book, uh, and, and, and all books come out like pulling good teeth sometime. And, uh, it's, it's never easy and it never starts out. And, you know, you're going to have as many lousy first drafts and, but you, you wrote a, a really good book that's going to help a lot of people, and you're a writer. Uh, that's what writers do. They write. So if you'll <laughs> kind of at least let that bounce around in your brain, stop apologizing for it taking a long time. You, you, you did a book and it finished, and there, there are many people who die with three novels half finished in the trunk somewhere. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. You, you finished And I'm it, proud so. of that. I am yeah, proud of that. Be proud I mean, of it's that. cool. Be proud of it. Yeah. I just, you know, sometimes I feel like, like a – a fraud, you know, like I stole somebody else's dream come true, you know. So I just feel like, oh gosh, I don't deserve this. There, but um, there are words I am out grateful. there, and if, anybody, if if someone is you know talented enough to put them together, then there's there's room. There's always room for another book if someone wants to do it. You're never, It's not like this is the last one. <laughs> You're not taking the last spot at the buffet. That's so true, right? Yeah, <laughs> right. and and truly, like it's kind of my job now. So I really do need to write, right. write a second book because that's my job. So we'll see. Well, your book is available pretty much everywhere. Is there one place that people can purchase it that benefits you the most? Uh, no, I mean, okay. if, if they I purchase it, that, it benefits so. me. So okay. yeah, Am- Amazon, Bar- uh, Barnes and Noble, it's, it's just book retailers everywhere, I guess. Ta- Target, you know, right. or it's not on the shelves in Target, but uh, Target online. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's out there. It's doing its thing in the world. Excellent. Well, finally, I asked these last two questions of all my guests and one, some people find pretty heavy and the other one less so. So let's just get the last two here. First one is the one that some people find a little heavy. Who is Jesus? Oh gosh. Um, I, I won't, I won't say who Jesus is for you. No, I'm just talking about for you. I'm <laughs> not talking yeah, about academic I'll tell you, answer, yeah, that's, yeah. No, that's what I'm saying is this, who, that Jesus, Jesus saved me. Jesus is my savior. Okay. So that's it. I mean, I don't know. 
Yeah, that is heavy. That's a that's a big yeah. question. Well, some people they're just. I mean, it's funny. Some people will stop and pause for three minutes, and other people will talk for twenty five minutes. It's just interesting how mm-hmm. different people approach that. But yeah, the salvation idea. People seem to have forgotten that that if someone's save, saving somebody, that means something was happening that they needed saving from. It's not, yes. Yeah. Not so much hell. All right. This last yeah. one's more fun. When was the last time you laughed so hard you could not catch your breath? Oh gosh. Um. That I couldn't catch my breath. It's been recent, um, probably with with like out with my girlfriends or something. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think of a specific. I, I laugh a lot. My friends and I have we have fun. My kids and I have fun. Um, laughter is just a constant. But I, I'm trying to think of what makes you laugh. Just think about what things make you laugh if you can't come up with a single one. You know, what? it's like anything that's like absurd. I love just the absurdity of life. I love it. I get off on it. Like it's just so just ridiculous things are constantly happening. And if you're watching and you're observant and you get to see, um, or you get to like bear witness to just the most ridiculous things. And I, I wish I could come up with a great example right now, but I, I just am not, I'm reaching, okay. but that just that's the absurdity of life where you're just like, I cannot believe this is my life, you know, where it's, yeah. Just, I'm with you in absurdity. Matter of fact, I heard a quote, and I wish I could attribute it. Someone had told someone they had said something. They said that uh, God will get you for that, and you're going to die. And they said, that won't happen because God doesn't want me, and the devil isn't through with me yet. <laughs> right, right. I like it's that like turn of it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So right. good. So, I, yeah, that's like, I just, sometimes I look around the world, and I'm just like, this is ridiculous, and we just have to laugh about it. So, yeah. Well, Jamie, thank you for writing the book. I have enjoyed this. Uh, it's always good to talk to somebody in the same tribe. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. Uh, Thanks for having me. Get ready to do something else. Let me know, and we'll 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 get together again and talk. And when you get your next book out, we'll help you promote it. Thanks. You bet. That'd be that'd be cool. Hopefully, I will not write it so slowly. <laughs> I'll keep you in the loop. I'm not going to live forever, Jamie. So you- <laughs> okay, fine. Fine. Greg's almost dead. I better get writing. Yeah, that's right. Just have, keep that in mind. Get that little okay, small picture day. frame of this one yeah. podcaster is going to die if I don't hurry up. Yep. This <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to write that on my chalkboard right now. <laughs> All right. I appreciate that. Yeah, thank Jamie's you so much. Jamie's voice is one that needs to be heard. And if you haven't uh, read her blog, uh, theveryworstmissionary.com, or picked up a copy of her book by the same name, you can get it at Amazon. It's... Uh, it's a, a, a really interesting first-person account of five years on the mission field, and uh, it's something that I haven't seen anywhere else uh, from that particular angle. And it might also help you be more informed next time you hear someone ha- putting their hand out for a mission trip or a trip to the Holy Land or any of those above things to think, does this make any sense? Uh, she really does bring some wisdom to the idea that why are white Christians spending $53 billion a year uh, sending people around the world to spread white religion. Well, that's going to do it for this time's Thinking God podcast. Hope you'll join us again next time when we try to bring some light in the cracks in all our lives.
Don't 